strange things are afoot at the Circle K. Welcome to my latest experiment. This is a big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. I just want to relax. Nice lukewarm bath. <laughs> I don't know how much longer I can hold this. Sarah Connor. Now look, carnage. Dead. Dead, dude. Well, what's fun about that? Quite sweet, really, aren't they? God, I love this street. No one. Hey, guys. Welcome back to Bill and Claire's Excellent Adventures. Today we're here, and I'm about to be strangled by the two people who are coming, but I sh- but um, the police officers are coming. Oh, I forgot to tell you what movie we're in. We're in Rope. <laughs> yeah, so um, our uh, operation master of suspense, our dive into Alfred Hitchcock's uh, filmography, our second film in the lineup is Rope, uh, which is a movie about staging the perfect murder. And for some reason, Claire sees herself as the murder victim by both of us. Does that make you a Brandon or a Philip, Danielle? She's a Brandon. I You're was a- definitely. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely the Brandon. You're Philip, Daddy. I'm, I'm sorry to say you are definitely Philip. I'm a weak with no resolve, no emotional fortitude, and uh, an inability to stick through it. I-, I was going for easily victimized by me, but sure, I'm if you want to describe s- it that I'm way. I'm also going to say that I'm pretty sure that you, that one, you you thought that curse words were different than what you thought. Sure. Two, you probably never made it out for sneaking out. <laughs> that's a definite. That's a definite. I I fact. can tell you that I have an extreme psychological aversion to doing wrong and breaking rules and breaking rules. I would definitely be a Philip in that scenario. I would definitely be emotional by the end of the night, and I would definitely be angry and drunk. Then I forget what exactly where in the scene it is, but Rupert says something and Philip just hurls his glass at the wall. And I was like, that's William. <laughs> right He's there. Like, right. He was, this is like, um, he comes in, he comes in and people were, and he comes in and he was like, he can't come. Then he's figuring it out and he's like, oh shit. And then he throws the glass and then he throws the glass at the wall. Yeah. <laughs> See, that's like if, I mean, your dad does not ever try to deceive people. That's just not in his nature. But I am a hardcore Slytherin. Was born that way and I'm kind of proud of it. And I would be the one in the foreground trying to run my con and he would be in the background smashing glasses and giving it all away. That would. A hundred percent be how our dynamic played out. So does that mean that daddy's Hufflepuff? (laughs) Oh, that's (laughs) such a burn. I don't really like the plants and the herbology. Yeah, no. I don't, I to be honest, in the Harry Potter world, I am definitely not being selected for Hogwarts. (laughs) Why? (laughs) You're just not even getting picked at all. Zero magical aptitude. I am more likely to be the muggle parent of... Uh, uh, mildly successful uh, wizard. It's hilarious. No, he would have been. He, I think he would have been Ravenclaw because that's where the nerds go. I think it's Hufflepuff because he doesn't. He didn't even know. No, because about- because Hufflepuff kids are very social, and your dad doesn't really like people. I don't like people. Uh, that's true. You have a shirt that effing says, "I shake ginger martinis." Not hands. You are very foul mouthed today, Claire. Yeah, you are. What's up with that? Yeah, my friends. Hmm. Okay. Well, that's, I mean, look, 
you know, there's a time and a place for all kinds of language. I'm hardly one to judge. Your mom certainly isn't. You also are always talking bad language. No, never. that's me. Never. Never. Never said a swear in my life. I think we've talked about this. No, you have not. I've heard you. <laughs> I, I think, Claire, you've, you've missed my sarcasm, much like... Rupert and his sarcasm missed his audience. I swear all of the time now. I was I was being facetious. It's it's hardly a sentence that I complete without having a swear in it. So what you likely overheard was me talking about the weather. Yeah, when his language gets very clean, that's when you should worry. Because that's mad. true. Because I I get way more precise, and my extreme <laughs> psychological aversion to breaking rules or being bad comes out, and uh, swearing is definitely part of that. So the less I swear, the more on edge i absolutely so for example right now you're super super angry because you haven't said an f word at all well no but it's it's like an itch that i can't scratch right now because i try not to swear on this podcast (laughs) so rope uh all right so rope let's let's look there's a bunch of stuff that i want to talk about rope um but i think the first thing that we absolutely should talk about it was yeah claire you really thought this movie was boring did you like so by the time you got to the end of the movie, did you have enjoyment of the movie or was this just a real slog for you? It's like the highest stump at Sky Zone that I'm too scared to get up to. But then also if I don't get up to, like, I'll be just I'll be just upset that I haven't gotten up to. No, I don't have any idea what that means. I think what she is saying is that she was determined to finish the movie because uh. she wanted to be able to say she finished the movie. But that was literally the only reason why. Mm, fair enough. So what didn't work for you, Claire? What what made it boring? There was literally no actions at all. Except for the strangling and the gunshots and the throwing the glass, Mr. Bill. Uh-huh. Well, Mr. Billy. Uh-huh. Or Miss No. Mr. Philip. Billip? I'm just no, throwing it out there. Don't you absolutely not. Yes. <laughs> Billup. That's your name. Billup. No. <laughs> all right. Anyways. No, I I agree with you that it it's kind of funny that this that the movie opens with a strangulation and then you have like an hour of very folded in sort of action. I feel like if a movie starts with the strangulation, you're kind of expecting it to ramp up from there. So that was a, a very interesting. Went down from there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah like in terms of strangling, activity Strangling. Talking, 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 talking. Strangling. Talking, 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 talking. Gunshots. Mm-hmm. Oh, you forgot. Glass break. (laughs) Yeah, glass break gunshots. (laughs) Did you like that last scene, though, when there was more action? Did you enjoy that scene or still boring? It was a good scene. It seemed like you were, um, because we stopped halfway through the movie to really have a conversation about whether or not this was going to work to get through the movie. I mean, that's really how hard a time you had engaging with the first half of the film. But I really don't feel like we had that much of a problem with the second half. I still was. I still didn't like it because... Like, I kept fidgeting because I couldn't, like... Like, at one point, I had to squeeze a squishy in my hand for me to be able to focus it mm. on it. Mm. Mm-hmm. 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 Like, I just put my hands, to clasped them together like I was clapping, but then I put a squishy between it and just held... So I put my hands together and I put a squishy in between them and I just held that until the end of the movie so that, I, so that I wouldn't be fidgeting. Yeah, all right, so parents out there, if your kids are really having a hard time with the movies you're forcing them to watch, give them a squishy. No, but I think that this is interesting because, you know, when we first started talking about um, doing more of a historical focus, Mm -hmm. 
which, sorry kids, but I don't consider 80s and 90s historical, uh, even though I'm sure they do. But when we were talking about doing black and whites and doing, you know, the classic films and doing some Hitchcock and maybe even doing some silent films, all along in the back of my head as a parent, I'm thinking, at what point are we going to hit a film that is just not going to work with a 10-year-old? And not because it's too scary, because these are not too scary for her. And not because, you know, she is not capable of understanding them, but because they're so different than what she's accustomed to seeing that it just doesn't work. The whole time that we were watching it, I had this feeling like this feels like a stage play. And I could see, you know, because you and I were both drama kids, I could totally see us putting this play on and it would be so awesome. But Claire really doesn't have a whole lot of exposure yet to non-musical theater. And so I'm kind of not surprised once you told me that it was based on a screenplay, uh, sorry, based on a uh, stage play, that maybe it was just a little too far outside her comfort zone. We'll we'll get to the stage play thing, but I want to focus on on right now, I think, what what you're saying there as far as like Claire. And, you know, Claire, I, I think that movies like this are an acquired taste almost. The first time you watch a movie that's really dialogue heavy, that doesn't have a lot of action in it, I think if you're not accustomed to that kind of storytelling, it's just boring because you're like, what? Like all these words and words and words and words and words, like you said, so much talking and no real action that you you have to practice to really appreciate a movie that is that kind of wordplay. And I think some of that is kind of hard when you're so young, not because you're a dummy. I, I think that you're quite a smart kid, but a lot of the wordplay and the like the wit and the humor and the style of this movie is in really heady concepts about murder and life and and Nazis and elitism. awfulness and elitism, right? And these really big lofty concepts that's got a lot of philosophy underpinning them that I I think like fundamentally makes it hard for you to have anything there to grasp onto. So I'm I'm really not at all surprised that this was a tough slog for you. Yeah. Also, you know, one of the funniest scenes in the movie, you really need to have a lot of exposure to like 1940s film Mm. to get when they were making the jokes about the film titles and the other actors. And and Claire doesn't have any context for any of that. When Jimmy Stewart was standing over the chest while the two women were talking about James Mason and the other leading men of the day and how awesome they were. Mm -hmm. Like, that was hilarious. But if you don't recognize those names or you don't recognize Jimmy Stewart, there's no humor in that. It's just just a couple of old people talking about uh, famous actors that they can't quite remember what they were in, which is dull. Right. But you were going to say, Claire, you said but. But, like, this movie is worse than Invisible Man. (laughs) And you know how bad we hated Invisible Man. I, for example, if if my comfort zone was fifty fifty, and and um my all time favorites, for example, um, a creature the Black Lagoon would sure. be at one hundred. So if it was like right. a test score, fifty percent, one hundred percent. So from zero percent to fifty percent to one hundred percent, I say um, I'd say that Invisible Man would probably be like. Twenty-five percent, mm-hmm. and then rope, fifteen. That's funny, mm. but you know, I like you say though, like we all did kind of agree that we did really didn't like Invisible Man. I think any of us, not no. not terribly. I loved Rope. This was, by the way, this was my first time watching this movie, and I loved it. 
every bit of this movie I was a thousand percent into. This kind of philosophical, nonsensical exploration of like just the nonsense that people say to say things and then turning that into a reality and dealing with the repercussions of it is totally my stuff. Yeah, I loved Rope too. I do think that that you're on to something though with the acquired taste. Uh, and and if you have not been exposed to this kind of art, whether it be on stage or on screen before, that it may be just a little bit of a stretch too far for your first, you know, introduction. Um, kind of your dad was talking about dialogue heavy movies. There is sort of the inverse of that where you have movies that are all action and very limited dialogue. And I hate those. Hate them. Your dad loves them. And there have been a few that are like his favorites that I just am really not into. Well, there's there are totally different kinds of storytelling. So right. this right here is um, it's based on a play. So the, the idea, right, is that you just have several people talking to you about this story and your theater goers can't go anywhere because they're stuck in a theater with the actors, the performers. And so you just really have to work with the spoken word on the complete other end of the spectrum. There are what basically become silent pictures today, even though they're not actually silent pictures. There are movies where, what's the better way to say this? So what is a movie? A movie is a visual medium, right? Where they show you pictures and it's an auditory environment, right? Where they show you, they present sounds to you so that you can hear. So you can see what people are doing. A movie is basically moving pictures with sound. Right, that's a way better way to say it. I, Billy, you don't know those words, is what people say to me when I try and like pretend that I can speak to 10-year-olds sometimes. I, I don't know those words. Moving pictures with sound. You're exactly right. So, But there's an end of the spectrum that focuses on the art of moving pictures. That is, how does the camera speak a language in and of itself with the, with, with the movement? Hey, we talked about it a little bit in Rope today. When at the end of the episode, right? Or the, the episode, it feels like a, like a, like a detective episode. Uh, <laughs> but at, at the end of the movie, right? There, Rupert is talking about how this murder might have been played out, right? And the camera is following around the story that he's telling in this now empty apartment, basically, right? That visual story that the camera is telling, you can use that to tell all kinds of stories without the spoken word. You could almost show that without the dialogue and you would place it in the movie and you would understand, okay, he's coming in the door, they put the hat away, he comes over past the piano, he gets a drink at the bar card, he sits down in the chair, and then he goes down in the floor. And you can show that visually. It's just two different kinds of mediums. And I think that your mom doesn't have very much experience with the the wholly visual kind. And I think it's an acquired taste also. What he's saying, he never says the part where he gets strangled on in it. He gets well, he because he, he didn't have the exact mechanism guessed, maybe, right in that moment. I Although, disagree. He actually probably did because he had the rope in his pocket. I think but, he, was, he was playing chess in how it would, how the reveal would go for him. Could he get out of it alive? Could he navigate the situation? And at the same time, it's his worst uh, dreams, you know, nightmares come true yeah. here that his students have taken him literally at his word. Right. And and he we later find out that he knows that Brandon has a gun in his hand the whole time. So he can't come right out and be like, I know that you killed David and I know he's in that chest and I know you strangled him with this rope right here because he runs the risk of Brandon shooting him. But it's um. Uh, it's I don't know. It's just it's an interesting thing to play out. And I what you said earlier, Claire, about your comfort zone. Like if this is my comfort zone, fifty fifty, right? 
I don't really think that we've seen anything that could really. I mean, this was well in outside of your comfort zone into a totally different territory. But of wet films. down. Yeah. Um, it wasn't like Frankenstein that goes up. It was like Invisible Man. Yeah. But you enjoyed Psycho, though, right? We started from Psycho, mm-hmm. and then we went way, way down to Rogue. <laughs> like, I was so ex- like, I was super excited to see how Rope was going to go. And then it was so bad. <laughs> I, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious. We have a, a three other titles that your mom and I are kicking around to put on this list, and I, and I might adjust selection based on some of this feedback. But you know, part of the thing that defines Alfred Hitchcock as a filmmaker is, is he really? He was the guy who said, "I'm making thrillers." Like I don't know if he coined the term thrillers, but he certainly popularized the concept of of them as a movie. And he is known as the master of suspense. And what is suspense in his movies, if not like these really dialogue heavy exchanges about the things that are going around as people sort of work around them? Well, and that scene where the housekeeper is cleaning up and nobody's paying attention to her and we're watching her get closer and closer and closer to discovering the body. That was amazingly tense for me. Um, and, And it was crazy because usually when you're watching a scary movie, you feel that tension when the characters are in physical danger. But in this situation, it was more like emotional danger. Yeah, yeah. like their whole plan was about to, you know, fall apart. Well, I was gonna um, say that the people were gonna, that the girl was gonna scream, the bed were gonna, the bed were gonna go into like, I'm not gonna say karaoke because I was gonna say that wrong. I meant I was going to say karate. But I was worried that I was gonna say karaoke. So like Kenneth was just gonna karate chop them. Yeah. And they were gonna karate chop them, and then it was gonna get into like this huge like fight in like Ninja Turtles, where like the people like go into like this massive cloud, and there's like these symbols coming out of it, like anger symbols and exclamation marks and stuff. You and really wanted the dialogue me. in this movie to end. What <laughs> I said, you really wanted the dialogue in this movie. She to was end. like, "Bring on the fight scene! <laughs> Give me some karate, karaoke, karate, anything, literally anything." <laughs> Karaoke. You said that um, Hitchcock, yep. the master suspense, made some silent mo- thrillers. Mm-hmm. So I was saying, well, I kind of create, came up with the idea to like, if you're gonna have multiple people talking in one thing, you could have like a karaoke on YouTube. They have like this. They have like this blue light that goes over the word when they're talking, or like an emoji. So you want like subtitles with the dialogue as it goes along, so that you can with a little help bouncing keep your ball. Attention. Maybe a little bouncing noose. Or, no, I was talking about like a silent thriller, so that oh. you can like pay, so that like you're not going slowly with reading. You could follow the emoji, or you can follow the light mm-hmm. to that brings it along. Or like have somebody shining a flashlight on the word that's happening at that exact moment. One of the things that I think is really interesting about Hitchcock, and I, I'm going to be honest, I don't remember what you said that triggered this thought in my head, but it was something you said. Is it? She promises she was paying attention. No, I was. But a lot of his movies are so different. Like, oh, I know what it is. You observed that this movie was nothing like Psycho. Like, it looked different. It felt different. The dialogue was different. You know, everything about it was different. And I know, and it didn't work for you, and that's okay. And the other Hitchcock uh, work that I'm familiar with 
Some of them are somewhat similar to Psycho, and some of them are completely different. Frenzy is totally different than either of these two movies. Um, I mean, it's interesting, though, to go from Rope to Psycho to Frenzy, because Rope is 1948. Mm -hmm. Psycho Psycho is 12 years later in Mm -hmm. 1960. And Frenzy is another 12 years after that in 1972. But, you know, some directors like Michael Bay comes to mind. They just have a style. Our tour filmmaker, Michael Bay. There you go. They have a style and you can see the film and you're like, oh, this is a Michael Bay movie. You know, um, because it has certain similarities with all of his other films, even if they're even if each film is unique and each story is unique, he just has this like stamp that he puts on it that makes it feel like a Michael Bay movie. I don't think Hitchcock is like that, which is kind of interesting. The only thing his films have in common is that they are extremely well done and the suspense is masterfully built. Also, he shows up in a, like a little backyard scene in a little back. He does make a cameo in a whole lot of his movies. It can't be in this one, though, because there's nowhere for there him to hide. There is a Hitchcock cameo in Are this movie. Are you serious? What? Where? So um, his uh, famous profile sketch mm-hmm. um, is by one of the red neon signs for a weight loss product that's in the background of the apartment no when the curtains are way. open. Yeah, so when the red neon lights kick on after um, as the party's ending, yeah. you can see his profile shot. And I think, I want to say that the weight loss product that it's advertising is a product that is mentioned in one of his earlier films anyways. Crazy. So. That's crazy. <laughs> I told you. No, you're right. I thought, well, as we were watching, I was like, well, you can't possibly have a cameo in this one because there's only this many people and we see them all the time. So... Um, talking about Alfred Hitchcock and the fact that really what a lot of his movies have in common is is um, technical proficiencies for filmmaking, right? Alfred Hitchcock undeniably is a great filmmaker. So Claire, I like I know that this movie isn't for you, and and I and I think that that's okay. What I suspect you will find is that later in life, if you go back and you look at this movie, you may well enjoy it. You may not. It may ever, it may never be your cup of tea, and either way is okay. But there are definitely some really cool things that he is doing in the course of this film that I I don't know, maybe will help you kind of enjoy the production of it a little bit more or at least take something away from it. So one of the things that I thought was really cool about this movie is the movie is only 80 minutes long. It's very short, maybe 81 minutes or something like that, but it's really short. And the next time you watch a movie, do you know what a cut in a movie means? Do you know what that means? Camera's showing you something. And then there's a cut. And then now the camera's showing you something different. Slightly different perspective. It's moved around. It's like the picture jumps to something else. Right. For example, if it's a slide and you don't have any transition, it just goes to the next slide without having a transition. Right. With not having like a fade or anything. Think about times where you watch conversation in a movie where two people are talking. Like we're talking right now, right? Like if somebody was shooting this as a movie, the easiest way to shoot it is while I'm talking, the camera's looking at me. And as soon as you say something, the camera jumps to you, right? Yeah, the camera goes behind your head and faces at me. Right. Right. But you don't see on the screen, you don't see the camera swivel, right? It's just like boom, boom. Right. It just... It's looking at me, and then it's looking at you, and then it's looking at me, and it's looking at you. That's that's called a cut. It means that there's been an edit in the film where they've taken one piece of film and attached it to another piece of film so that when the viewer looks at it, they see one continuous, what looks like a continuous shot, but there's actually a jump in the perspective, right? I was thinking that maybe when they do those things, they like have two cameras, and then the guy switches it off, 
Mm-hmm. And they switch cameras so that one guy turns it on and then the other guy turns it off, mm-hmm. and then it'll face each other so that. Mm-hmm. But then the guy, but then they edit out the people in the scene. Well, uh, there's actually a couple different ways to shoot it. Um, so what they might do in a shot like where you and I are talking, they might shoot what's called a master shot, which has both of us in it, and we do our scene and we talk, and then they shoot their coverage shots, which is a camera faces just me and we do our scene and we talk. And then they do coverage for you, and we do our scene, and we just talk. And then all of that footage goes into an editing booth, and the editor looks at all of it and says, this is the story that I want to tell with this scene. And maybe they set it up with some from the master shot, a little bit of me talking, a little bit of you talking, and then they fade it out. Is the master shot kind of like when they were looking, when the camera was like, when it was like the person might have been under the chest or something, and they were like... They were like crouching down and fa- they were like crouching down and facing the camera up to to see the woman talking with mm, the man. No, I think the easiest way to say it would be it would be like your widest possible shot. Yeah. So the master shot was like when you could see the whole living room. Right. And then maybe they would cut into something. Now, here's what's interesting about rope is that rope doesn't do any of that. Next time you watch a movie, watch for the cuts. You'll see them. They pop out there. And it doesn't mean it's bad to have cuts in a movie at all. But it I tell you what it does is is it makes it really, really hard when you don't have any cuts because what the rope camera does is follow the actors around the room. You see how that camera pans around as it's telling the story and it zo- comes, walks up to one couple that's talking and it turns around and shows you the apartment and walks up to another couple that's talking. And it's almost like you were watching a play live and going from conversation to conversation as a sort of a choose-your-own story, it makes you feel like you're there at this party instead of just watching this story presented to you on screen. And it's really, really tricky to do that. So what Hitchcock did in Rope is he shot single takes where there are no cuts and all the actors have to know all their lines and all the places that they walk for all of the amount of time that he was going to shoot up to 10 minutes long. This movie is 80-something minutes long, and there are 10 total segments in it, 10 cuts. That's it. So that's an average of eight minutes a cut. Most cuts in films are like every 30 seconds. So in eight minutes, an average filmmaker, you would probably have something like 16 edits in that particular film. And it may seem like, okay, that's super easy to do. You just film like you're watching a play, right? And the actors do their lines and sort of like that. But... These cameras that they shot in color, it's 1948. So these Technicolor cameras are gigantic. And they've built this apartment. Like people ride on them, don't yeah, they? Yeah, 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 yeah. Like people ride on them. Like they're huge. They're huge. They're, they're person size. They're massive. And so in order to do each of these segments, they would have to choreograph like a ballet almost where all of the actors were going to be so that the camera could swing through. And then while the camera's not looking at something, production people would have to go behind the camera and move furniture out of the way, roll walls out of the way, so that the camera could swing through all the different spaces and get the shots that Alfred Hitchcock wanted. So, I mean, it is like a dance that they're doing. And it's a really challenging thing to do. And so Jimmy Stewart, the guy who plays Rupert, uh, he really didn't like it. I mean, he's kind of a... an like at that, I mean, every every one of those guys is old school filmmakers now. But Jimmy Stewart was kind of an old school filmmaker and Alfred Hitchcock's kind of an old school filmmaker at that point. And the rest of the cast were mostly young folks. Um, but Jimmy Stewart didn't like the fact that they had to show up to rehearsal to practice where the camera was going to go. Hey, I, Daddy, Mike, your cup of tea 
that cup of tea thing is not used anymore. <laughs> That's old school. We now say your popsicle stand. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what you would say is it's not your popsicle stand. Well, there's always money in the banana stand. What? That's not the proper use of it. That's an arrested development quote. Oh, okay. Like, there's always money about? in the banana stand. We'll always be old school, Daddy. Right. So Jimmy Stewart said, the really important thing being rehearsed here is the cameras and not the actors. And he really didn't like how Alfred Hitchcock was prioritizing what the camera was going to do over what the actors were going to do. And that kind of is in line with that idea that Alfred Hitchcock was trying to do different things with film than other people were doing at that time. And it wasn't always necessarily a popular thing. I thought Jimmy Stewart had a great performance in the movie. I think Rupert was awesome character that he brought to life. I think Jimmy Stewart's a phenomenal actor. But, you know, you're, you're talking about not our popsicle stand, not our cup of tea. Even what Alfred Hitchcock was doing at that time was not Jimmy Stewart's cup of tea. I think later on he went and said, yeah, I think it was great that, you know, Alfred Hitchcock was the guy who would do this. Of course, it would be him trying to push the envelope. Uh, I just didn't think it worked. But I watched this as a huge fan of the single take and was blown away by the production value of what went on in here. I thought it was awesome. Well, and I... I don't know that I would consider myself a connoisseur of Jimmy Stewart's work, but I've seen him in Harvey and Mr. Smith Goes to Washington and It's a Wonderful Life, sadly. I hate that movie. So I, do, I do too. He's wonderful in it, but I hate that movie. Why is um, It's a Wonderful Life? Oh yeah, that one. You said that you hated it because the man like gets shown all his li- like his life, what it would have been without him. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a really it's, dark It's very movie. depressing. Yeah. Why but, does our family like it? Oh, Grammy and Seashell, I don't know. I have no idea. But my point is... Because it's their popsicle stand. Yeah, there you go. That um, term would be that w- that term would be their surfboard. <laughs> I think you're just having me okay. on now. But my point is, the films of his that I have seen, they do a lot of close-up work with a lot of cuts. And so my guess is that Rope was just fundamentally a different type of shooting experience than he was accustomed to because he was probably used to having a camera right up in his face because he was Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, he's he's a gorgeous leading man. Why would you not put a camera right in his face? That's how you sell tickets to movies. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Who was Jimmy Stewart? He played Rupert. Oh. Okay, so so movies based on a 1929 play by Patrick Hamilton. The story was adapted by Hume uh, Cronin and the script for this particular film was written by Arthur Laurence. Hamilton. Um, yeah, but not that Hamilton. Yeah. Um, but so, okay, so, so Patrick Hamilton wrote the play. The story by credit means Hume Cronin looked at this play and said, here's the story that we could tell kind of as an idea from A to Z, you know, from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. And then um, what Laurence does, uh, Arthur Laurence does, is he sits down and he writes the dialogue for all of those scenes to get from A to Z, from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie. Now, um, Arthur Laurence is actually uh, a pretty relevant guy to talk about in this movie because this is actually his first screenplay, is Rope, 1948, with Hitchcock. But he is co-creator of famous musicals uh, like West Side Story. And he wrote a bunch of others. Uh, so let me take a look at my notes. So he wrote the scripts for these other musicals? Yeah, 
I, a lot of these other musicals that I see that he has credits for, like West Side Story, Gypsy, Hallelujah Baby, like I when I click on them, he's I think that he writes the scripts, but for musicals, I'm not totally sure how those credits get passed out because most musicals are driven by the song and the lyrics in the song, like all the plot development happens in that. And so like for West Side Story, Sondheim and um, somebody else came on to write the lyrics for it. So I, I kind of think he's like a, like maybe a producer is right for this. Like he's helping craft the story and the direction that needs to go and all the stuff that needs to go into it. And, and maybe he's not writing the exact words for it that it goes on. Credits are in a paper, are in a paper booklet handout. They are. Yeah. Um, always a big deal. Get your booklets when you go to Broadway. The other thing that you would like about him, Danielle, is that he directed an ad- adaptation of Le Cage Faux in 1983. <gasps> My favorite for which he won a tony of course he did because kaj always wins all the awards when it is on stage <laughs> as it fucking should um but when they hey. re- redid sorry uh, well i mean it's it's great it's a great musical but also when they redid uh they updated the west side story uh to be a bilingual thing right and lin-manuel miranda participated in that arthur Lawrence was back helping with that so um i think he died in 2011 or something like that and that that relaunch was like uh 10 years ago maybe 12 years ago but my point is is that arthur Lawrence is like he's his writing and his contribution to both the film and theater is a big deal like he's a lot of the stuff that you love is mm-hmm. he's majorly responsible for and if we go into musicals after this i think almost certainly we will watch a west side story oh, west side story will definitely be on the list yeah. um, which he played a major role in creating is it's a wonderful life a musical no it, no it is not it is and that would make it marginally better to endure it would make it better it it i think the technical term for that movie is dumpster fire <laughs> i cannot emphasize enough how much i hate that movie um but so yeah i i think that's another really cool thing about this particular movie is just like kind of cuz this was his first screenplay was mm-hmm. rope and from there he went on to this like really big career but to kind of see his work right here right now especially yeah, on, a, on a play like uh film and if he was active from 48 to 2010 or something like that like he really ought to be getting some big lifetime achievement awards posthumously yeah i think he's a, a pretty storied famously successful guy i think that since we've talked so much about it's a wonderful life on this now we just have to watch it's a wonderful life no you can no, you are more I'm than watching it on the podcast, okay? I'm you know not. what? You know what we should do, Dad? Actually, I changed my mind. We should, that should be like the ultimate punishment when one of the kids is really bad. We make them watch It's a Wonderful Life alone. Ugh, I don't know. I, and that movie is exhausting. I really okay. don't like it. I, you know, Claire, I mean, but in all seriousness, Claire, like, I really don't like that movie, and your mom doesn't really doesn't like that movie. But like, most people love it. Number it, one, it, well, it is a very popular movie. Most people do love that movie, and I certainly wouldn't shy away from showing you movies that I don't like if they fit a theme that we're trying to explore or build out your knowledge. But there are a bunch of Jimmy Stewart movies that I would put ahead of It's a Wonderful Life for me personally, and there are more Christmas movies that I would put ahead of It's a Wonderful Life. There are more movies about suicide that I would put ahead 
of It's a Wonderful Life. There are more movies about second chance stories that I would put ahead of It's a Wonderful Life. As far as I can tell, the only cinematic value of It's a Wonderful Life is that people like it, which is a perfectly fine reason for you to watch the movie. And maybe one day it will just be a segment of this podcast where we do a month of movies that people just like. <laughs> like the like the um like the um 2010 to now um list that that was your least favorite oh i wouldn't make a least favorite list no that's not your dad's that was from the chat cast no my not top 10 is what that oh. was so you know for the for the in the mouth of darkness um i we do a top 10 which is called the dorkies and then we did a not top 10 which was 10 movies that impacted us that we still really wanted to talk about at the end of the year you know darren interpreted that as some of his disappointments and i i think it's fine to talk about disappointments and i I certainly don't have any problem talking people talking about movies that they don't like but for me and for my money there are so many movies out there that i think are awesome that i would love to talk about and i would love for more people to see that i don't want to spend time talking about movies that i don't like I think that there's some value in always watch more movies. I would never tell somebody to not watch a movie that I don't like. Like, Claire, if you really do want to watch It's a Wonderful Life, I might even sit down and do it. But I don't think that I could talk to you about it on the podcast without spending 30 minutes talking about why I hate this movie. And I don't think that that's a fair experience for any movie, especially when there are people out there who love that. I mean, there are people... Every movie is somebody's favorite movie. Like, you didn't like Rope, right? That movie didn't work for you at all. You thought it was just garbage because it was so dull and boring. But I guarantee you Rope is somebody's favorite movie. And I don't mean just like, oh, I really like it. I mean their favorite movie. And I I try and think about that when I think about the movies that I want to talk about is if I'm just adding negativity to this, somebody's favorite movie, they're going to click on that and listen to it. And they're going to, what, hear me saying that it's a garbage fire, this thing that they like? I don't, I don't want to do that, you know? But that's, that's just my approach to the way that I talk about movies. You disagree? You think that's, you, you, would, you would rather talk about movies you don't like? Like, uh, I don't know. I, I'm not sure of the reaction. Oh, sorry. I was rolling my eyes because you were saying that you didn't want to say trash about somebody's movie. And I was like... How could anybody like this movie? It's a Wonderful Life? No. no. She oh, rope. rope? I love this movie. I wouldn't say it's my favorite movie, but I absolutely loved every bit of this movie. I thought it was hilarious. I thought it was suspenseful. I thought it was extremely well-crafted. I thought the performances were on fire. I love this movie. Literally, it was perfection for literally me. Literally everyone I know on this street would say that this was a garbage movie. And that's okay. Everything doesn't have to be for everybody. I, you don't, I'm not, when I tell you the things that I think about this movie that are cool and interesting about it, it isn't to change your mind that this movie is awesome. Although I, I think there's some value in a conversation where you talk about what didn't work for you and I talk about what worked for me. I think we can have a conversation about that. But I don't need you to change your mind at the end of this movie. I just want to share some interesting tidbits about some of the stuff that went on in the background of this to kind of give you an idea that even in movies that you don't like, there's a lot of work that goes into making them, and there's a lot of things that you can grab onto to celebrate. And that's that fundamentally comes from my own approach of how I look at movies, which is there's always something to celebrate. Yeah, and your dad and I also, it's really important to us that you grow up with a solid understanding of film history. When you are at school or you know even working when you're much older, 
and someone brings up Hitchcock, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I have seen this, 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 right? And and you already know, even just from the two that we've seen, that Hitchcock has cameo appearances in all, uh, I think all, maybe most of his movies. You can talk about the long takes in Rope, even though you don't necessarily like the movie. You can talk about the suspense, you know, that he builds in his movies. When somebody references Norman Bates or the Bates Motel or Mother, which are huge pop culture references, you'll know exactly what they're talking about. So there's a lot of value in what we're doing, even if you don't walk away from it like, yeah, I'm going to go watch Rope again because I loved it. And the more of that culture that you experience, what you will find is the easier it is to appreciate a movie like Rope that relies on some understanding of a lot of those like cultural things and philosophies and arts and, and that sort of stuff. It makes it easier to grasp onto stuff. So um, does anybody have anything else to say? <laughs> so yeah, I still uh, would very much like to talk about Arthur Lorenz and really some of the subtext that um, Rope gets into. And I, Danielle, you kind of asked during the movie, a question. I think maybe let's talk about that and explore that. Are you talking about when I asked if they're supposed to be gay? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I I had a really kind of strange experience watching the film because it seemed so evident to me that Brandon and Philip were in a relationship, or at the very least, that Philip was in love with Brandon. Yeah. I wasn't a hundred percent certain if it was reciprocated. If you know, if like Brandon felt like they were roommates and Philip was in love with him secretly, um, or if they were just a couple. I wasn't sure. But the the longing looks and the the subtext and everything seemed to be there, but because the film was made in nineteen forty eight, I felt like I had to be wrong. What subtext? What is subtext? No, what subtext? So Subtext is something that is not in the dialogue. So in a dialogue-heavy movie, nobody actually says this out loud. Nobody says out loud that Philip um, and Brandon are in a relationship or not in a relationship. Um, Nobody really talks about it. But the subtext, which is some of the meaning that happens underneath that, that might be implied or could be possible based on how people are talking, that's sort of what subtext is. And in this case, it's whether or not uh, Philip and Brandon are in a romantic relationship. And so you asked that question, and I absolutely, you know, just watching the movie, it at the very least, Philip is in love with Brandon, and he is going along with this murder plan out of his love and affection for somebody as opposed to uh, just a pure desire of his own accord. No, I, I totally agree. But because of the time period, I was like, okay, are we meant to think that it's a platonic love? Like they're best friends and he's just so devoted to him? Or it, or am I correct in reading that he is in love with this man? Because it definitely felt romantic to me. I mean, even textually though, they are living together in that apartment. Yes. And, uh, they, and vacationing together. And vacationing together. And... They refer to where the phone is as in the, the bedroom. bedroom. Right. There is not more than one bedroom in that apartment. It is in the bedroom. Yes. Um, so I, I think implicitly it's there. But what I wanted to say is the play 
by Patrick Hamilton, Rope, uh, which came out in 1929. Those two characters are gay. They are gay in that story. And Arthur Lawrence is a gay man. Um, the actors that played Brandon and Daryl are either bisexual or gay. And so, you know, they're not allowed to say stuff like that in the movies at that time. You know, being gay wasn't an okay thing. Um, there were some people in Hollywood who were out. We talked about it a little bit with James Whale, who was making, you know, the Universal Horror Pictures in the early 30s, that he was an openly gay director, which was so unusual at the time. Um, Never said that he was openly gay, or at least that I remember. No, yeah, we talked about we it. We talked a bit. about it, yeah. And, you know, a lot of people who are making art in this time period are not straight. And they are not free to tell stories that feel like they apply to them, that feature characters on screen who match their lifestyles to see themselves represented on the screen. And so sometimes what people would do with subtext is just leave it there. Leave all the pieces there for people to figure out. If a viewer wants to watch this movie and recognize that having a phone in the bedroom with a plot that's clearly driven by one's loving affection for another... um, then yeah, put those pieces together and recognize that it's there. Um, but really, if you're not into that sort of thing, and you just want to go to a movie and watch a thriller, that's also there. You can go and you can watch that movie and they don't have to be. It was not suspenseful at all. <laughs> I totally disagree. I totally disagree with that. You weren't at all worried that they were going to find the body in the chest? Only when she was clearing stuff. Yeah, when she was clearing stuff. That was like, I it was It wasn't like, super tense, but it was like, oh no, are they going to find out? If so, are they going to freak out? What is going to happen? So it's not like tense, like, oh, this is going to happen. Right, it's a different- It's tense, like, mm-hmm. what the F is going to happen? No, I agree that it's different. When the phone rings or the doorbell, I wasn't totally clear on which it was, and Rupert was coming back- I was like, oh, y'all going to get it now. <laughs> yeah, the phone rings first and then he comes in at the doorbell. Yeah. You know, the the other thing I thought was kind of interesting in this movie was like, did you think, Claire, when Rupert was talking about the fact that he thinks that murder is OK? Did you think that he was being sincere that everybody should murder everybody? You're shaking your head now. Why do you say that? I think he was just trying to be like, this is what would have happened in the old ages. Anybody who was inferior would die. Everybody who was counted as superior would stay alive. Yeah. Basically kind of like a survival story in Minecraft. You have to be a really good Minecraft player to survive. But then you also have to know the basic survival methods. Of You also have to know the basic creatures' survival methods to try to kill you in there to survive during the night. You know... Oh, it was interesting um, when he, when Jimmy Stewart as Rupert is delivering that speech about how much better the world would be. There would be no poverty, no homelessness, no this, no that. I thought, oh my gosh, this is the Purge movie. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Like yeah, yeah, yeah His yeah. whole speech is exactly it's the philosophical underpinning of yeah. the Purge films. And if someone had said to me, hey. Did you know that The Purge was sort of loosely inspired by Alfred Hitchcock's rope? I would have been like, yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> the Purge is a series of movies where for one night of the year, it is legal in the United States for everybody to do anything that they want. Murder, steal, whatever. 
The yeah. police can't do anything about it. Don't nope. do anything about it. Don't do anything Wait, about it. Wait, but what if somebody gets ser- seriously injured? Are, pol- are ambulances allowed to come there, and help them? Nope. There is no emergency services during the purge. There are some people who choose to provide emergency services, but they risk their own lives doing it. And uh, there are several movies in the series, um, and all of them except for the the one that is like the origin story of the purge, uh, which is about the first purge. All the others mention that there is like virtually no homelessness anymore because crazy people, or I guess they're not, not really even crazy, crazy. That's but the just point. gross, violent people target the homeless during the purge because they have nowhere to hide. Yeah. And I, I think what makes that interesting about rope though, is that from, from Rupert's perspective, he seems to me like he's like he likes to be provocative, like to say something that might get a shock of like, a, oh, how could you say that? Like he enjoys that experience conversationally. Um, but he never meant it for real. I Not only do I think that he never meant it for real, but I think that he meant it as like a, a satire comment or like an absurd remark, like the absurdity of that remark that everybody should be allowed to murder and it would solve so many problems is so self-evident that he can say it in like a darkly sarcastic or provocative, deliberately provocative sort of way and have there be no consequence to it. He's the same like guy of from Shape of Water who would who shot the girl in the belly. Oh man. Yeah. I I disagree, actually. I he's he's almost the guy like Brandon because is the guy that would shoot Eliza in the belly the part- having listened to uh, somebody like Rupert talk about American values. Mm-hmm. I was talking about the part where he talk where he's going to the bathroom and he washes his hands first, and he's like, "Washing your hands both times is a weakness, but I am not going to touch my own body with my own germs." Right, but that's what I'm people. saying is, but I don't care if other people get mine. And the guy doesn't care if people don't like his remark. He's doing it to make people want to do that. So they kind of have a similar thing there. Even, not, even though it's not exactly alike, like there's not, like they're not the same intentions. They're basically the same thing of what they're saying. Well, just, dif- just about different things. Some of with the shape of water is talking about how these big ideas that run governments and countries and define who we are as a nation are things that are sold and not believed in. And in that way, that dude that you're talking about in Shape of Water, Strickland is a lot like Brandon because Brandon buys into it. You know, that's what happens in Rope is Rupert talks this big game about like, oh, murder should be, everybody should be allowed to be murdered. That should be fine. And Brandon, who's a budding sociopath, is like, you know, man's got a point. Murder should be allowed. And in fact, I'm a pretty smart guy. That would validate my intelligence. I believe what he's saying. And the shock and horror that Rupert feels when somebody took him literally is overwhelming. Yeah, I had a, I think, a slightly different take on it. I felt like Rupert's rambling about superior and inferior and all of it, you know, he talks about intelligence, that that's the dividing line. The superior people are intelligent and inferior people are not. And he thinks that being stupid should be basically a capital offense. But something about the way that he talked about it, and particularly the things that he thought it would solve, poverty, homelessness, etc. Mm-hmm. To me, he is basically endorsing classism 
Um, you know, there are a lot of people, a lot of classes, people who believe that the wealthy are wealthy because they are smarter and that poor people are poor because they are not smart. And, you know, we it's know actually the exact opposite for most people. Yeah, I mean, rich I, people are stupid. <laughs> That's my child. Yeah, that is. Well, super rich people are stupid. Well, I don't know that there's most of them. I, I don't know that they're stupid, but I do know that plenty of poor people are very smart. And intelligence has absolutely nothing to do with your socioeconomic status. You could be the smartest person in the world and be the poor, poorest person sure, in the world. Sure, absolutely can. And there are a lot of examples in history of absolutely hunting. genius people who started in very poor um, beginnings. How do you like them apples? Yeah, how do you like them apples? But Rupert is, you know, he worked in a prep school. It doesn't get any more elitist in classes than that. And so then here Brandon hears him and takes him at his very literal word in every sense and then kills a member of their social group. Mm. You know, they make a point several times of saying that David had the largest bank account out of the entire group. Mm. So I think that Rupert's horror is not necessarily that Brandon killed someone. It's that he killed a rich person. person. (laughs) I like that interpretation. I mean, you know, I'm very much in the eat the rich uh, vibe of 2019. A lot of the great movies that came out this year, I feel like, had that vibe to them. I was thinking that The Purge was basically during that time, the homeless people would kill the rich and then live in the richest homes and take the richest money. Sure. And that is possible in in the sense that it is legal. But if you watch the films... Um, what happens is the wealthy people are able to afford to arm themselves and to build, you know, armor around their homes and stuff like that so that it's just not possible. It takes the idea that the the modern uh, upper middle class of America live in castles in suburbia and literalizes it by literally allowing them to make fortresses out of their homes. But yeah, so I don't know that that was Hitchcock's interpretation, but that was definitely mine. Yeah, but I I guess I think that's what's interesting about a movie like Rope is that with dialogue that comes like that, if it's not your thing, you're not going to go along with it, and and a, a lot of it will pass you by, and and that's okay. Like like I say, Claire, I don't. If you didn't enjoy the movie, I think that's fine. Now I find myself kind of wishing that we had watched Rope not as part of our Hitchcock dive, but more as like its own thing almost because. I feel like we should have watched Rope and then shown Claire, you know, one of the Purge movies and (laughs) then shown Claire Murder Made Easy because, Claire, you haven't seen it. We'll have to show it to you. But Murder Made Easy is this really amazing film that also takes place in just one apartment on one night. And it is a dinner party. So very similar kind of, you know, setup. Four dinner parties. Okay, true. Four dinner parties. Maybe three. But in in this situation, instead of one couple trying to get away with one murder, it's a couple trying to get away with several murders. Yeah. At the um, party or is it before the party? At each party. So basically they st- invite a series of people over to like dinner. They're like, hey, come by our place at 7 for dinner. And then the next couple are like, come by our place at 7.30 for dinner. And the next couple, come by our place at 8 o'clock for dinner. And so all these people are coming for dinners. And then the, the guests show up and, and they try and kill them all. All the guests? Yep. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. Uh, it's 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 another talky, heavy feature, um, but it's a lot of fun. But there's more action in it because of all the murdering. 
Yeah, there's a lot of murdering. So, like, honestly, I would be interested to see what Claire thinks about it because I bet you that it would walk the line of like the everything that we loved about Rope, mm-hmm. but more accessible for her. Hmm. Maybe, maybe. I mean, we definitely should show Claire Purge. Yeah, I think I think showing her Purge, I would be fine with. Definitely a lot to talk about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've definitely got some stuff that we need to put on the to watch list at some point point. and by the way murder made easy uh dave palomaro guest of the uh in the mouth of darkness chat cast and guest of the alamo draft house of winchester virginia and friend of the podcast so you know if you take anything away from this go check out murder made easy because that dude made an awesome movie and and he's a pretty cool guy i like him a lot well or jump over to the chat cast and listen to the interview with him yeah yeah i think it's enough pr- producting our other podcasts <laughs> so yeah anyways let's get to closing this out unless if you have something to say because i definitely don't and i know you just said you don't have anything else so do you have to be i think claire hated everything about this movie and is annoyed that this conversation went on so long yeah i think so too nope i'm good you can close it out thank you okay so make sure to check out our previous episodes we are at episode like 34 or something well let's see 31 was The Wolfman, 32 was The Rise of Skywalker, 33 was Psycho, 34, no, 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 33 was Creature from the Black Lagoon, 34 was The Shape of Water, 35 was Psycho, and 36 is Rope. Okay, so check out our other episodes from 30 to now. It is the 36th episode. I like the episodes from 1 to 29 too, though. Make sure to check out the chat cast. Make sure to check out the In the Mouth of Dorkness, where Daddy makes a fool of himself because he's called the Anti-Dork. Claire, your patience has been admirable for the entirety of this conversation, as long and drawn out as it has been, almost nearly as long as a movie that you hated. (laughs) That makes it tough to talk about movies. So yeah, let's get out of here. If you don't already follow the podcast, you can find us on Twitter at B-A-C-E-A podcast. If you have any questions for Claire, hit us up there. We'll read them out on the air. But also, we'd love to know if you've shown your kids uh, Alfred Hitchcock movies. You know, what do they make of the dialogue heavy ones? Because this was definitely outside of her comfort zone. If you also don't uh, follow the uh, It Modcast chat cast, um, you can find that. uh, You can find our our feed for that on Twitter uh, at It Modcast. You can also find the In the Mouth of Darkness feed there. You can find our interview with Dave Palomaro version one when he was out at the Alamo Draft House Winchester in Virginia for a film festival. And then version two when he came back out again for the theatrical release of his film. He's been on the podcast a couple times. He's a really wonderful dude. And Murder Made Easy, really, truly, if you love rope, go check out Murder Made Easy. That movie's a lot of fun. If you don't subscribe to the podcast, please do. Uh, We can be found wherever you listen to podcasts. But if you do have some time on your hands, we sure would love it if you would drop by iTunes and leave us a five-star review. Uh, That's the type of help that only listeners like you can provide. And it is essential as we seek to expand our audience. But I think that's going to do it for now. So until next time.